Coming up on Citizens Insight, an updated interview on Project Iron Boomerang with Shane Condon and Captain Steve Pelicanos. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the special program of interviews with special guests from around the country and around the world. I'm Glenn Isherwood, editor and production manager of Citizens Insight. Today we welcome back Shane Condon uh, for an interview on Project Iron Boomerang and also welcome Captain Steve Pelicanos. Welcome Steve, welcome Shane. Hello, thank you for the invitation, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. The subject of this show is to have a broad discussion of a great infrastructure project, Iron Boomerang. Two years ago, we presented Iron Boomerang and uh, hosted Shane on this program. Now we believe we need to uh, give you an update on the exciting breakthrough developments that have occurred. So just to give uh, a background on uh, our two special guests today, Shane Condon is the managing director and founder of Project Iron Boomerang and from East West Line Parks. Shane has more than 30 years experience running operations in the food industry, especially meat and seafood. Shane was uh, the first to establish a prawn farm operation in the Northern Territory. He has founded uh, Meatworks and been responsible for the operational management of businesses with more than 120 people and multi-million dollar turnover. Uh, and since this seafood and meat uh, industry is very important for supply chain efficiency that has good important bearing on what we'll t talk about today. Captain Steve Pelicanos has more than 50 years of experience in the shipping industry. There's probably no ship type uh, that Steve has not piloted. Uh, Steve has been a ship captain, a marine pilot and has worked as a harbour master and a regional harbour master for Queensland ports. He has done extensive consulting, designing and training in the shipping industry for decades. He is the director of Poseidon Sea Pilots which is responsible for servicing Brisbane with 32 marine pilots and their crews. Steve is the vice president of the Nautical Institute in London, an in international institute for maritime professionals and he also runs a shipping company since 2016. And uh, I could go on, uh, Steve's CV is so long, uh, but uh, we need to get on to talking about Iron Boomerang. So again, welcome uh, to you guys and thanks for joining us today. Um, what is Iron Boomerang? Project Iron Boomerang is a steel-making infrastructure project, national in scope, which would produce 44 million tonnes of first-stage steel, slab steel for export. The idea is to build a railway line 3,300 kilometres long that links the Bowen Basin in Queensland, the coking coal fields over there, to the West Australian iron ore fields at Newman. The idea is to send the coal west, the iron ore east, and at each end of the railway line we build a hub, a steel complex, which has five steel mills, oxygen, and, and other processing facilities to produce the steel. And of course, this will also lead to massive increases in industrial output of other things as well. So there's 
The first question, of course, cost of what does it take to build this? There's the steel mills, there's the railway line, the rolling stock, there's the dock locked ports, and then there's the ships. So the whole price tag um, on estimates from Shane, from East West Line Parks, is this will be around 70 billion US dollars, 100 billion Australian. But the way that this is achieved is we encourage and invite investment from around the world, from the steel makers, from sovereign countries uh, that need steel supply. We build it in Australia, we export it through Iron Boomerang. The idea is each of the 10 investors get a steel mill and a share, a 10% share in the project. So that 70 billion US dollars is part broken up into $7 billion allotments, which then, then we can go out and invite other countries to invest in. Of course, part of that is also uh, inviting and expecting the government of Australia to also invest in 20% of the project, two steel mills, $14 billion, to more than double Australia's output of steel. So that's part of the funding model. Now, the railway line itself alone is about $21 billion. But as you'll see from our guests today, uh, we have a project which is so important for Australia's future development that these numbers pale into significance when you consider the century-long advantage that this brings for our industry, uh, for, our, uh, for our employment, for our communities, not to mention the, um, the permanent new cities that it creates. The project was first presented by Shane Condon uh, in its current form in 2005. Uh, previous ideas uh, like this were fl floated by Lang Hancock, Joe Bjocchi-Peterson, and have been kicking around for a while, but this one, the dimension of Project Iron Boomerang and Shane's concept, it has legs and it has the numbers to back it up, and that's what we'll get into today. But uh, the significance of having this show today as well is we are now in the midst of uh, a Senate inquiry uh, into Project Iron Boomerang. Back on the 5th of September, uh, Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts of One Nation, moved a motion to establish an inquiry into this project. It's full scope. And this will be an extensive inquiry going well into next year. There will be hearings coming up. Submissions have already been taken. And uh, what I want to do to set the tone of this interview today, I want to play the words of Labor Senator Glenn Stirl on the 5th of September responding to the introduction of this inquiry by Malcolm Roberts and his response to this bold project. So let's roll that clip. Deputy President, thank you. I just want to uh, put a couple of minutes to support and thank Senator Roberts for bringing this to my attention. And I hadn't heard of Project uh, Iron Boomerang, but I sat down and got a briefing from Senator Roberts. And I remember it comes back to uh, when I was a kid growing up, and I remember in the great state of New South Wales, we used to do all this sort of stuff. We actually used to make our own steel. We used to have proud steel cities where there were communities, there was bonds, there was families before this fly-in, fly-out nonsense took over, before the farm was sold, if I can use that terminology as a farm. 
and it breaks my heart to think, if I'm watching my grandchildren grow up, how disgusted they should be with politicians before us who thought this was a good idea to, to contract out work we used to do, and we did it well. Especially when I pick up and I hear conversations like what I've picked up in Senate inquiries on the, on the inland rail, where there's concerns of cheaper uh, uh, steel coming from China, nowhere near the Australian standard. And regardless of who's in politics or who's in government, I always still have a fear. Who are the ones who are supposed to be out there monitoring this stuff? Are they doing their job properly? And that's not a blue versus red conversation or a blue versus red blue, uh, uh, argument. I nearly said blue versus blue, but you know what I mean. So I want to support, and I know the, Australian, the, the Labor Party and, and Prime Minister Albanese and the Albanese government support you, Senator Roberts, for bringing this to us. I think it's a magnificent thing. And I also think this is what we should be doing. This is the big ticket items that, when I first came into the Senate, Lo and behold, I thought we would be discussing this stuff on a daily basis. <laughs> How tricked I got. But anyway, at least let's get back to it. The big stuff about building a better nation, as I said in my first speech, and leaving it better than what we found it. But I want to share a quick comment with the Senate. And I was in China and I met with Madame Fu Ying. And some may think, who's Madame Fu Ying? Well, Madame Fu Ying is very highly regarded in the CCP. She was a, a China's. Um, uh, ambassador to Australia during the Howard regime. And I was joined by Senate, former Senators Gallagher and Dastiari, where Madame Fu Ying made it very clear to us how wonderful it is. Thank you, Australia, for sending us your coal. Thank you, Australia, for sending us your iron ore, because we turn it into steel and we make a, a heck of a lot more money selling it back to you, and we appreciate that. I want to support this, and we will support this, Senator Roberts. And I urge and I understand the opposition hopefully get in behind us too, because this is the stuff we need to do. And once the beauty of speaking after Senator Roberts, you've heard the whole guts and the crux of the matter. I can't pick an argument in there. There's, there's not a downside that I'd see. And the beauty of it is that I know when it comes to my committee, the Rural Regional Affairs and Transport Committee, a committee that's been predicated for all the years I've been here to put aside all the political bulldust and actually dig deep, go wide, go varied, listen to everyone who's got a thought and actually try and deliver in the best interests of our nation. Senator Roberts, I'll take my hat to you. I look forward to joining you on the uh, tour and let's try and put these two great industries together, iron ore in my state of WA, coal in your state of Queensland. This makes too much sense. I'm starting to get a headache because it's sounding too easy. I might wake up in a minute and think I was only dreaming. Fully support you, Senator Roberts. The Albanese government will be backing you in on this one. So, gentlemen, that was Senator Glenn Stirl uh, thanking Senator, a senator from One Nation for bringing this uh, bold project, this incredible project, uh, onto the uh, national stage in federal parliament. Uh, we will obviously be hearing a lot more from this regional and rural affairs committee. Uh, I expect in due course both of you will be testifying and providing evidence to that committee. What I want to do, though, this program today is for the general audience, the laymen, the everyday Aussies out there who are passionate and concerned. So um, I want to open uh, with, generally, uh, let's start with the most important aspect of the uh, Project Iron Boomerang, which is the 3,300-kilometre rail line. And, Shane, if you want to say a bit about the background of why you came to... 
uh, develop Iron Boomerang, please go right ahead. But let's start with the railway line. What are the main features? Well, the, um, first of all, I think um, the history of it really goes back to BHP in the 1930s. We had, they had a great board and at the time it was uh, noted as uh, in the history books as the most efficient steel company in the world. And they back freighted by, by the coastal systems from the iron ore and metallurgical coal, coking coal mines in Queensland and um, New South Wales and uh, um, in South Australia. They back freighted coking coal to iron ore and uh, iron ore to the coking coal. And they had steel plants. That is highly efficient, no empty returns. And then the great great visionary men, Lang Hancock and Bielke Peterson, you know, thought about the rail following on from that. I learned about that in primary school social studies books in Queensland in, in the 1950s. So um, that stuck with me as a kid. And uh, so that's the birth of Project Iron Boomerang. And I remember uh, seeing, uh, Shane, in um, uh, articles written in the 1970s that uh, Lang Hancock believed that this rail line would be built. He had no question in his mind that this would be done and that we would be using all of our resources uh, across the country linking up to the iron ore deposits in Western Australia. So here we are uh, 50 years after those uh, articles are written by Lang Hancock and this line hasn't been built yet. So no, and, uh, you know, Sydney Harbour Bridge um, was built in the 1930s from the Depression um, with British Steel and the Rivets were the highest tech in the world at that time. And uh, Bradfield um, made, made it 12 lanes wide. That was the great vision. They only needed four. And it was the widest bridge in the world. And it took 66 years to pay it off as big infrastructure important infrastructure always is to nation building. Mm. So we do have a deep empathy uh, with that. I'm staring at the Story Bridge, which was built with the leftovers of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And guess who designed the Story Bridge? Bradfield. And uh, it's the shortest highway in Australia, Bradfield Highway. It runs across the Story Bridge for about a kilometre and a half. Mm. So, so there's a bit of history to start with, but a bit of soul, a bit of soul and substance. Um, and history teaches us a lot and we need to be mindful of that and get this done. It's, and it's encouraging that we do have senators now that are passionate and, caught and, and, and dedicating their time to looking at this. So on the railway line, 3,300 kilometres long, it will uh, be traversing some of the flattest country you can hope for. Yeah. Um, it's got a corridor feature. What's in this corridor? What uh, can we expect to come with the railway line? Well, um, you know, Senator Glensell emulated that beautifully. One of the best speeches, is, of course I'd say that, um, that I've seen in Parliament for 16 or 20 years. And congratulations to Senator Roberts for making the nomination and linking it all up. Senator Searle also called on the LNP to, to back it, as you do in a government in a wartime. It's that important. So there we go. Now, the 3,300 k railway line, we've done the aerial survey of that 
Australia led the world in aerial survey work. Mm -hmm. uh, CSIRO, guess where Google Maps come from? And the, the CEO of, uh, um, of Google um, acknowledged that in Australia and New Zealand, that Australian technology developed Google Maps as an in innovation for the world. It shows that Australia is a leading innovator. And in this case, we're building the railway line to connect a heavy haul line of 44th ton axle, which is the most efficient in the world. And guess who leads the world in heavy haul rail technology? Well, it's the Pilbara. And Monash Rail Research used to be BHP Monash Rail. And their shareholders in Iron Boomerang, Monash Investments, Mm -hmm. I just mentioned them amongst other major corporates that have shares, uh, founding shares. So we've got the capability behind us internationally, nationally and, and uh, regionally. So the coking coal, metallurgical coal goes to the iron ore and the iron ore goes to Queensland. Only half the ore travels the continental rail distance. And then we make first stage steel, slab, bloom, billet or hot roll coil, the project's costed on slab just for convenience, you know, but it'll be all those first stage steel products exported through the rail to the ports, four by two berth, uh, two by four berth dock lock ports, um, two thirds of the way up the east and west coast. What an asset that is for defence for Australia. Big gap filled. To fix up a submarine or a frigate or a destroyer in a couple of days instead of a couple of months, we could fix the propeller or something. Mm. So the, the depth of iron boomerang with that sort of stuff. And then Captain Steve Pelicanos is waiting with his captain's cap on and a friendly smile. Well, let's uh, uh, let's and, ask and this question. And uh, he's going to take the slab steel to the world's biggest <laughs> industrialised market countries. And we'll bring... Can, and that ships my invention, and we bring full containers back. It's a dual-purpose roll-on, roll-off slab steel and container ship. That, we export our containers back 83% empty. We'll come to the ships in a second, Shane. I want to uh, do want to throw a question to Steve here. Steve, one of the most common question marks around Iron Boomerang that comes is we already have the iron ore shipping out from the Pilbara. We already have the ports sending the coking coal to Asia. If we want to make steel mills in these places, why don't we ship the goods around the coastline and uh, drop them off to, make the, to, to save us all the expense of a railway line? As a captain, what would you say to that? Oh, look, um, what you're suggesting makes sense, except for the fact that the iron ore and the coal isn't on the coast and every uh, sector of a supply chain costs money. So if you want to get the coal to the coast, you've got to pay for that. Uh, and then uh, you've got to pay to put it on a ship, and then you've got to um, sail it around to the west coast, pay to berth, pay to discharge it, and then pay to take it back down to where your mill is. So this... Uh, and to Murray, in, in, in well, Port Midland particularly, you know. <laughs> and and um, so... The uh, rail line takes it from um, mine to mine, if you like, and that's where the steel mills will be located. So that's where the efficiency is. So, so there's um, massive uh, handling costs that uh, are involved, and the emphasis is, yes, this, these steel mills will be at the mine, 
which is not Port Hedland. It's uh, it's down near Newman, and Moranbar and the and the Bowen Basin, which is is also a trip no, to the Abbott coast. Point Abbott Point, Abbott Point for those uh, yeah. steel mills. Yes, that's right. So there's also another factor is is port infrastructure um, for uh, the savings of not having to uh, capital expenditure. Do you guys want to say something about that? Well, the unloading port, and uh, Steve will, can verify this, uh, with, you know, it's an honour to have somebody of his calibre uh, on our team. Um, we've got 11 divisions and they're all of the calibre of Captain Steve and uh, Dr Stewart on the Marine Division side. Um, so it's a fantastic, uh, to, you know, privilege. Uh, for 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 Iron Boomerang and me to you know to do to be part of that for them to be part of it, but the unloading port is three times more. It's a bucket unloading. It's not a conveyor belt into a ship at ten thousand tons an hour or twenty thousand tons. Uh, bucket unloading in, in even in China, the were the most efficient are unloading the iron ore and coking coal is very slow and it ties up the port that's already the most congested up to 70 vessels 20 a day you'd have to have 10 just for loading efficiency to queue up to get into the port headland and demurrage is three to five dollars a ton on 960 million dollars a year so call it four dollars mm-hmm. call it a billion that's four billion saved mm-hmm. by doing it by rail in 42 hours, not not a week. So to, month, just in time stocks, time is money, and um, we consolidate the ore and the trains. You eliminate the trains returning empty. In, in the Pilbara, it's 400 kilometres, 800k total return journey. In the, the Bowen Basin, it's 150 to two. 240 kilometres return, call it 600 kilometres. So you've you've just eliminated that uh, journey. Um, so half the ore, um, the efficiency on the rail. If you were flying Qantas Perth to London on the direct flight and it was a $4,000 economy fare and you had no return passengers, the airfare would be, wouldn't be 8,000, it'd be 10,000. That's, that's a sort of a description of, the efficiency of having the payload each way, railway line and ships. I want to come back to that uh, issue. That's of, in tens of billions of dollars in the scales we're talking about of net profit. Shane, on the ships, uh, I want to come back to that point about uh, specialised ships uh, and the uh, return, the efficiencies of backhauling. Uh, but I want to stay with the railway line and the steel mills uh, for a bit here. Um, First of all, the features of the the trains themselves. Uh, what advantages do these have over diesel? Um, the design that you have uh, put forward, and also what uh, capacity or scope exists for um, extra use or uh, multiple users of the railway line? Because its its prime purpose is mine to mine to get the steel mills supplied. We'll talk about steel mills in a minute, um, but that's its primary use. What scope for exi- uh, expansion, spur lines and other things exist? Well, we, we have an economic benefit for steel 
and it's at, um, at $3 economic benefit for every steel dollar, and that's a very conservative application. Um, but on rail, it's a dollar for dollar for new mines. Um, so the mining development's obviously the big one, but the corridor, the rail corridor, which is a question I didn't answer before, um, will have fibre optic cable as well as microwave tower. So it has backup security. It'll connect the Indian and Pacific Ocean fibre optic cables in the most secure location on earth. So I'm told by the big cloud operators who want to join because of our regional security and also our surplus baseload power. Mm -hmm. um, they are now multi-billion dollar customers for the big clouds. Amazon, Microsoft, Starlink, uploads and downlinks. There'll also be provision for water pipelines and gas pipelines. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so on the rail, above rail, we will have open access, but under our control, we must, our trains are worth 100 million each, nearly, not quite. But and how many trains do you have uh, running? Well, I'll give you a brief description of what happens every day. There are six trains going, some of them three to four kilometres long. The, the iron ore train will weigh roughly around, we've yet to fine tune the optimum efficiency. Um, the tear weight of the train is 10,000 tonnes, 4,300 horsepower locos, um, and they'll travel at an average speed of 85k up to 115k and do the journey of 3,300k between the two steel complexes, east and west, in 42 hours. Um, the gross weight of the train is 44,000 gross tonnes and roughly 4.1 kilometres long, and they take about that long to stop in an emergency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's just an interesting figure that train buffs love to hear. Um, the, uh, um, uh, the, we will have passing loops. It'll be a single line. It has the capacity of 140 uh, tonnes per annum, a million tonnes per annum, mm -hmm. 140 million tonnes per annum. So we're using 32 million tonne uh, each way, 64 million tonne totally, which is half, the, half the, the recipe to make 44 million tonne of steel a year. Mm -hmm. so, so it's roughly half. So um, the uh, um, other mines will develop off that. We anticipate that once we get approval for the line, and I'm stressing this as an urgency to governments, and all parties, it needs to be a bipartisan as in war. You've got to win the war, we become one government to win the war. So we're not raped and plundered, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, economically that is under threat and even under defence, that's, that's an issue these days. So Iron Boomerang actually provides that, that answer. One train could take the total Australian tank force plus its fuel trucks on one train. At 44, the whole of the army's tanks and fuel trucks and service trucks. Well, in my uh, submission to the Senate, I emphasise that this is an east-west transcontinental railroad uh, right. in, in every effect, you know, the heavy freight aspect. Uh, and uh, the United States has, I believe, four east-west transcontinental rail routes. 
uh, and the first being built in 1869 by you know the Lincoln government, Lincoln presidency, and uh, you don't find anyone today saying, "Geez, that was a bad idea." But this is, you know, for for the capability it, it provides across every spectrum of the economy. Um, one of the questions these senators and politicians always ask is, "What are the calculated benefits?" And and I made the point. Well, how do you measure a dynamic transformation of an economy of that scale? Uh, you you it's can a pluck Sydney numbers Harbour out. Sydney Harbour Bridge needing four lanes instead of yeah. twelve. The yeah. Sydney Harbour Bridge is exemplary case. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So on onto the steel mills, and then we'll get onto the the question of the ship infrastructure in more depth. The steel mills five in Newman, five at Abbott Point in Queensland. Uh, so with their capacity for production at stage one is 44 million tonnes per year, but over the course of time, it could go up to as much as 200 million tonnes annually uh, with this modular concept that we can have more than five steel mills. But each of those mills, um, a world's best practice, uh, incredibly efficient and automated. Optimum uh, efficiency is what we've built them to, to mm. maximise the efficiency. So, so go through some of the numbers, um, uh, Shane. Uh, how does it stack up and uh, with uh, current practice in world steel? Uh, has it does it tick the boxes on finance and cost? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, optimum efficiency is optimum efficiency anywhere in the world, and we met with the biggest steel mills in the world, twenty-four who've signed our confidentiality agreement, expressing their interest. And in the boardrooms and often the banquets after, we had very interesting discussions. But I was told by Japan, South Korea, China, India steel mills, you'll be the only one who can compete with China, compete and beat China. They admitted it straight out. They taught me about their industry. I said, well, if you complain, how can you complain? I I was a meat and seafood processor and exporter before I met you, but a critical perishable supply chain manager. They used to love that, the Asians. But uh, they understand that uh, we made steel in the Iron Age 2,400 years ago next to the iron ore mines and coke and coal mines. And we, you know, it was a bit like the blacksmith with a furnace and bellows, you know, and charcoal. And they made the first steel after making bronze for about a thousand years before that, 500. I'm not sure of the exact uh, figures, but better brains than me would know those things. So the um, um, the optimum efficiency, I've seen blast furnaces as big as 5,200 tonnes per, per year. That is a beast. Uh, they're, they're the world's biggest beasts. They're like Elon Musk's rockets, you know, they shake the earth. And um, so, but they're very, very good at, and very efficient. Now, the steel mills um, of 4.4 million tonne, we started at 3.6, but then we adjusted it to the optimum. And um, um, a steel complex sharing the third party services, which is up to 40%, the oxygen plant, the stockyard, you know, the. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that, Shane. That- yes. The uh, these steel mill complexes are much more than just the steel. Uh, you take all the extra uh, 
aspects of the complexes into account uh, for not just steel making but the spin-offs as well. Uh, we'll cover them in a bit but um, so you have oxygen, you have slag, cement production uh, but we're talking basic oxygen furnace. This is what they do in China, this is what they do in Korea, Japan. We're not talking about um, at this stage any form of uh, novelty uh, technology in the form of hydrogen or no, reduction. This is proven, proven costs and proven outcomes and mm -hmm. all known, known, as Rumpfeld used to say, known, known. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, we're not taking any gambling, doing it, decarbonizing that process is bloody hard work, if you'll excuse me for swearing in this podcast, but um, it is hard. We've been beavering away. and But this is the sure thing and viable in thick black font process costs. Mm -hmm. If we increase costs for the Asian century who want new steel, not not scrap steel melted in the electric arc furnace, which is a, has a very important and valuable role to play, mainly in fully developed countries. Up to 40% of the steel is that. Mm. And it is in Australia. Sims Metals are the world leaders in, in scrap metals. Mm. And I talked to them a lot in the early days. They were the smartest marketers in the world. And they're now being bought out and shifted to the States. But, um, and uh, they taught me a lot about the metal industries and markets. And uh, again, Australia punching above its weight. Now, Iron Boomerang will will help Australia will host the world in efficient steel making. This will this is a game changer for the world. And the secondary products from the steel making, there's none with the with the um, electric arc furnace. There's there's no secondary products. Mm -hmm. They're much more valuable, more than twice the value of what the steel is. The steel is the heart and soul anchor. There's nothing. There's no railway line mm -hmm. ships or ports without this steel model. Everyone needs to understand that. And we are the worst place in the world to build a steel plant on its own in Australia and build the ports, build all the, we, the scale. We lack the scale. We're 27 million on a continent, you know, so on an island continent. And the that's Yanks, the, that's the, the Yanks get upset with me when I say we've got an exclusive continent. They don't like that, but uh, I enjoy that with them. So, um, so we have a responsibility, therefore, in this exclusive continent to do this for the world and host them like Sydney Airport hosting international airlines. You don't own them, you host them. And if you wanted to own them, you'd end up with one ten percent of the business, you know. And we can piggyback off that scale and the Australian government can own two of the ten steel mills if it can afford it for New Zealand and Australia and ship the slab down to Blue Scope at Port Kembla, and they're getting slab 15 to 20%, nearly 100% green in, in year 30, and 100% green by 40, and not spend their billion dollars in upgrading a brownfield plant for half the result. Mm. Now, the CEO of Blue Scope said that himself, not me. <laughs> so. Well, that, that is, uh, this ticks a lot of uh, boxes for those concerned about carbon and the environment. But I'm going to jump now to the shipping and we'll come back to the uh, question of environmental benefit, but we're going to tie it in and appreciate your patience there, Steve, because we've got a lot to cover. But uh, over to you on the significance of the uh, tying in the supply chain of shipping. Now, first question I have is, uh, 
Okay, first thing, we've got this uh, type of ship that's been specially designed by Shane Condon um, with uh, features of gantry cranes, roll-on, roll-off ferries. These are 100,000 tonnes. They can take 2,000 containers empty plus the steel out to Asia. They can bring back 2000, potentially 2,000 full containers of freight back into Australia. Uh, first question, uh, Steve, is um, what do you see as the advantages of having a roll-on, roll-off 100,000-tonne ship compared to larger ships in this type of market? Um, when you design a ship and, um, and, and it's designed for uh, purpose, and the purpose is here um, in Project Dime Boomerang to be, to be part of the supply chain. So the ship size has got to uh, be tied to the uh, output of the mills, okay? So that you've got, uh, uh, so the supply chain runs smoothly. So uh, the, the mills are producing roughly 85,000 tonnes a week. You want 85,000 tonnes loaded into a ship every week and exported to where it's going. So it's, it's production that determines ship size, if you like, optimum ship size. Um, the good thing about uh, our markets where we're taking uh, the steel slab is that they're the, uh, also the great uh, container um, hubs of the world. So we're able, and one thing about Australia is that we've got a lot of empty containers here that need to be taken back to be filled in, in, in the industrial areas of the, of the Far East and Europe. So we can carry empties back and there's a demand to carry empties north and uh, then we can make slots available. And we have spoken to the uh, mainline operators, the big mainline operators of the world to make slots available to them to help them bring uh, uh, containers back to Australia. As you probably know, uh, there's a great demand for contain container slots right now. Mm -hmm. uh, supply chains are being disrupt uh, have been disrupted since COVID. So to answer your question, 100,000 tonne ship is uh, designed to meet the output and uh, the advantage of Roro, of course, ships make their money when they're at sea. When they're in port, they're spending money. So you've got to minimise import time. And uh, if you're going to load a ship conventionally, that, that'll just take far too long. So a Roro ship, um, for those who don't know, it's a roll-on, roll-off ship. You might have seen pictures of them. They've got a stern door. It uh, backs into a port where it locks itself into a dock, drops its door, connects to a railway line, the, the train comes straight into the ship uh, and then the ship is, uh, each slab is uh, coded and a computer on board, the gantry on board will pick out the slab and slot it into where it should be going depending on uh, what its uh, um, uh, destination is and um, we can load a ship and again, look, these are preliminary figures. Uh, these have all got to be uh, tested, simulated, but we think we could load uh, a ship uh, in about 36 hours. Now, that's tremendous. That's, that's very quick for that amount of cargo, and that can only be achieved through Aurora. If I can butt in, the current world shipping practice on steel would be about six days to do the same yeah. thing we're doing. So we're doing it in 36 hours versus six days. So Correct. that means I saw some figures there that we could get 
um, eight to nine, eight to nine uh, round trip journeys to and from per ship uh, per year uh, at those at those uh, uh, efficiencies. Um, Unloading and loading that applies both ends. Mm, mm. So you've gone to twelve days and you've put down to three days replacement. Mm. So that would autom- that would make us one of the fastest deliverers in the world. Nothing like it. It's a game changer for the world steel industry. Yeah, and 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 remember, this is uh, I keep coming back to to the supply chain. You know, it's just a continuous production, transport, production. It's just a supply chain. It's just like an it's a conveyor belt, no, pretty well. There's no delay. It's no. produced. It's put onto a ship. It's taken up there, and we got a number of ships on each on each run. So. Um, uh, there's no delay. There, there won't be any need for, for hold, uh, you know, holding cargo, storing cargo. As the cargo is produced, it goes on the ships. Is it common in the industry to, to backload like this with specialised ships of this type? Well, no, specialised ships, no. They're, uh, they make their normally specialised ships are designed to carry a specialised cargo, and typically they uh, carry the cargo one way and come back in ballast. So by... Um, being able to make slots available to the MLOs, mainline operators, um, we defray the operating costs. Mm-hmm. So we're making money both ways. Yeah, Which is a rare thing. And I, I just want to jump in here to emphasise what this is competing with is the current practice where the bulk ore carriers in the Pilbara, in the, in the Bowen Basin are carrying coal and iron one way. That's 60% iron, 40% uh, dirt. Um, and they're coming back empty. So the efficiencies are incredible to produce that uh, steel and export it directly. Uh, and you said before, Shane, just to reiterate, that, that uh, the cost advantage in competing with China, which produces 54% of the world's steel, uh, we could do it 10% less. Based on this, uh, back, does this factor in the uh, cost saving of the, uh, in the shipping side of the containing yeah. containers? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It's, yeah, the, on, the, on the iron ore, it's six times more efficient because it's 30 over 200 for the empty return on the iron ore, 60 FE iron ore going north, 40% dirt. So it's 60 over 200, 30% efficiency. So we're three times more efficient just in, um, in that, but we make steel, which consolidates the two ores of coking coal, limestone, or three ores, and um, iron ore, and we consolidate that three times to make steel. So we're six times more efficient in freight tonnage terms than the current practice. Uh, do you want to comment um, on the uh, the fuel consumption aspect of that, and specifically on how um, how would it work running these on LNG? You know, Australian ships running uh, on LNG, Steve. Well, um, running on LNG, and, and we are looking at uh, a number of alternate fuel sources. We're working with uh, Wartzilla in uh, Finland, uh, who uh, I, I would I would put them as as uh, you know among the top operator. Uh, well, prop top designers of marine engines, uh, looking at a number of alternative fuel sources. But of course, what the important thing is with fuel is being able to refuel at, at the ports that you, you're uh, 
going to. So, uh, you know, being powered by LNG is all and good as long as there's an LNG facility to bunker at, uh, you know, Port Hetland or, or wherever you're going overseas. So they're the things that we've got to um, uh, look at. And uh, I think by the time we, well, we're reckoning by the time um, our ships are built, we'll have um, engines running. Look, the alternatives we're looking for is um, LNG, LPG, of course, hydrogen, although I see hydrogen as being an interim um, uh, an, uh, an interim uh, fuel source. Then we've got ammonia, methanol and biofuels. So we're looking at all of those. And uh, important, as I say, is the ability to bunker where we are. And uh, it might be that we start off with something like LNG, which is probably more, more accessible, and uh, look at um, refitting those engines during the life of the ship. But uh, we're looking at zero emissions. They're going to be ultra-modern, these ships, like nothing anyone's seen before. Ultra-modern, uh, zero yeah. emissions. Um, you it's know, quite exciting, yeah. We'll be coming down uh, through the reef to... Uh, go to the Queensland ports and, uh, um, you know, people will be pleased to know that these ships coming down through the reef won't be carrying any um, uh, hydrocarbons. And they're double hulled and double strength mm. of any ship coming there at present. You know, they're, yeah, they're very, very strong. These ships um, yet to be built, but I, I was particularly um, fascinated by something you were saying about prototype ships and then mass production. Uh, take us through the costs of producing these ships um, initially and then uh, once we've got a fleet. Like I think we want to get up to, to for optimised uh, efficiency, uh, 55 ships. Is that right? Yeah, that was the pre-COVID uh, figure. But, um, we're, we're doing some of the intermodal handling of up to 5,000 tonne, up to 500 tonne net of, in a, like a 40-foot open cage, like a container-sized cage. And Steve and I and Captain's, uh, Captain Steve and I and Dr Stewart have been talking about that recently. And uh, that will improve the efficiency, but we won't claim that. The 55 ships pre-COVID, uh, we met with Japan, Korea, and China shipbuilders. In fact, we met with the number two boss of the, the biggest shipbuilder who builds the aircraft carriers for China. And my Chinese uh, Nick Mung um, um, manager um, said, do you want to meet these guys? I said, of course, they're the most sophisticated builders in, in uh, China. Of course, we want to meet them. And he said, go and get your technology done in Japan and Korea, the high tech Asian countries, and we'll build them for 20 million less, you know, um, the 55. So that's just interesting because it's very topical to what's happening now. Now, steel prices have doubled since the COVID Ukraine war, and that, that, that the whole world has to suffer that. That doesn't affect us. But when we're ordering 55 ships like a Camry Toyota car, there's big cost advantage. I'm sure Steve would uh, agree. You know, you're not building one ship model, it's a Camry car model, and you're going to mass produce them. So, and even servicing them will probably be half, like a Camry car, Toyota, service centre. And what's so, their operational lifespan of these Roros? Uh, longer than the bulk carriers that flex, 
you know, in a storm and sink uh, uh, around Cape Horn, you know, the insurance rate during winter, Captain Steve would acknowledge this, with Lloyd's London, it doubles during the four months of winter in the cold seas. The, the big bulk carriers up to 400,000 tonne, they flex and sometimes break, break in half. And you can see videos on YouTube on that actually happening um, in a big sea, a ship flexing. So these ships are quite different. We've consolidated the cargoes three times and we've built a stronger ship, okay? And it's more than three times the value of the ore. So I would believe Captain Steve will be in charge of the, of the schedules, but we'll, when you've got a more valuable cargo, you speed up and use more fuel. And we'll be using, I'd like Steve to comment on this, the Aussie pods and like the Queen Mary, which cost a billion dollars to build by the French for p and it's, it's got turbines in the roof, gas turbines, electric, and they have Aussie pod electric mm -hmm. propellers, variable pitch, that can turn 360 degrees. So you don't need, um, you don't need uh, docking, which is against Steve's business, but it saves a lot of money. And um, so maybe Captain Steve can talk on some of those things, but these efficiencies add up to, that means our containers will be 30% less cost to everybody who lives in Australia. Every business, every person will benefit from cost efficiencies in the tyranny of distance continent you mentioned before, mm -hmm. because we've yep. priced our container business to be competitive. And I'm flagging this early without fear, because. No one can copy this model unless they do it or own it themselves, you know. So it's a powerful, it's going to improve Australia's efficiency, economic efficiency with the rest of the world and those of our, and those of our major trading nation partners. Mm -hmm. it, it has a dual effect, strengthening effect. Well, Steve, I've got a question, uh, one f uh, final question on the shipping, but did you want to comment to, to that? Um, look... Uh, Shane covered a lot of ground in uh, what he just said there. Um, uh, what, what I will say is that the uh, we get back to it being a prototype, prototype and, and uh, once the shipyard, we've done the deal with the shipyard and they build the first one, the second one is easier and then it gets like to be a production line, they all come out, so yes that helps uh, reduce costs. And I think it's the same. You know, you get the economies of scale as you would in any uh, project of, the, of that size. Um, as far as efficiencies are concerned, Shane touched on Azipods, uh, which uh, will be incorporated into the design. This is newish technology and with uh, power thrusters. What well, you know, a, an expensive part of operating ships is tugs, you know, in ports, uh, they can be very expensive. So to the extent that you can discount the use of tugs by having a ship that's able to manoeuvre itself without assistance, uh, again, you know, that's, uh, that's straight to the bottom line. Mm -hmm. So um, there will be a lot of um, features incorporated in the design of a ship to make them economically efficient. Okay? Yeah, uh, given... Uh, um, it's, it's not unlike the, the locos cost $9 million each. They, and they're, they're diesel electric. They'll be LNG electric, which is 40 to 50% less carbon energy. So we can build them right now, you know, and, and, and we'll also have regenerative braking, recharging, 
and we'll also use solar batteries. We'll apply similar stuff to the ships. We believe we'll start at 3032 in the decarbonised supply chain of ships and trains by 70 to 80 percent and then 100 percent by year, year 40 when we start phase two of the iron boomerang project. Now that's uh, double what the Albanese government's 43 percent is by 30 and 10 years ahead of the year 50 carbon neutral mm. and mm. That is lowering the cost, not adding to it. That is the difference between us and a lot of others. Yeah, we're not adding the cost in. We're and we're not guessing about it. That technology is immediately available to us today. Mm. Speaking of the LNG, um, I did also want to acknowledge that this is, has massive benefits for the Northern Territory in the uh, plans to have sent in Central Australia this tea tree uh, refuelling and servicing hub which is going to have a permanent workforce. We could source uh, lots of uh, in, and make available training and uh, opportunities for Aboriginal communities, remote communities, uh, having a centralised, um, uh, you know, a point midway on the line that will provide the LNG and, uh, and re-service uh, the train. So uh, the, only, uh, the one question I wanted to finish the shipping section here on is Given that this will create steel mills and a railway line, it will revitalise Wyala and Port Kembla uh, steel works. Uh, Steve, what do you think about the prospect this could uh, lead to a revival of a shipping industry in Australia? Look, I'm very excited about this. Australia used to build amongst the best ships in the world. We had a thriving shipbuilding industry and for all sorts of reasons, uh, it's really non-existent today. Uh, what we really, the only things we build is uh, warships um, in conjunction with some foreign designer or foreign supplier. Um, in the days when we were a shipbuilding nation, we were, we were, as I say, among the best in the world, and and, and we were really pioneers in a lot of the designs in um, in uh, in shipbuilding, in ships and shipbuilding. So. Um, Currently, as look, I could go off on a tangent and talk ad nauseum about our nation being an island nation and having no shipping expertise at all. Now it's it's all gone, and and it's quite precarious for a nation Bizarre. to be, um, you know, yeah. completely um, devoid of 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 maritime knowledge, experience, uh, skills. Um, having our ships under our flag will help address that in some way, but also to start building our own ships here. Um, one of the reasons that led to the collapse of Australian shipping was labour costs, but of course modern shipping now is high tech. Uh, it's mainly built by robots. Uh, they're built in sections and brought together. Labour labor costs have uh, really um, as part of the overall building costs, labour costs are, are a very small percentage compared to what it used to be. So using the technology, having the steel available here, we could uh, uh, re-energise or start to rebuild an Australian shipbuilding industry. Yep. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Lower, lowering the capital uh, input costs, uh, automation, high tech, 
Um, I can say that China and, and these countries in Asia, their wages are going up. They're, they're, as Bob Catter said in a recent event in Canberra, he, he made, the, made the, the, the funny remark that China's no longer cheap labour, it's, it's getting a, a much stronger middle class and those wages are increasing. So that disparity is, is, is being closed. Um, so we have to have the eye to the future. Shane, you were saying something? It just starts with, it, it, none of this starts without competitive steel. Yet the most important thing is competitive energy. Anywhere in the world, you haven't got an economy. And we're seeing that in front of our very eyes by the minute right now. So it's competitive steel and competitive, Iron Boomerang has both. It has an iron dome of sanity and planning protection for the future, long-term planning. And, and with the Aboriginal thing, we're not a, a sunk cost mine, which, which is what mining is. It's always been thus. Ballarat and Bendigo were built on gold mines that aren't there now, but just prospectors here and there. So, but Iron Boomerang's there for, for the century. Mm -hmm. Our great-great-grandchildren, we're part of that community when we build that line, as I said to the Central Land Council. We're, we're, we're going to be part of each other's family. Mm -hmm. How do we do business? That's, I'm not interested in the politics. How do we do good business for the future? How do we train the kids for a permanent job, not a, not a guest job or, you know, charity job, a real job, permanent? How do we build it? Let's do this. How do we do business? They nearly stood on the chairs in Central Land Council clapping. They said, how unusual to get somebody like that coming in with, with a vision and well, a plan. We'll, we, uh, we'll have to take a few more tours, uh, Shane, because uh, that's, uh, that's the, the greatest challenge now is getting more um, support and awareness from, for, for the public. That's, you know, why we've uh, taken but such a strong... But let me interest. say something to Australia's yeah. advantage. Where in the world can you go and meet one council that can give you... Captain Steve, I've told him this story, um, where you can get a 1,000 kilometres of railway line east to west dealing with one council. Hmm. Wow. Go to the United States or Europe or inland rail and see what that problem is. <laughs> Well, um, on to construction operation, um, I just want to talk about the numbers of employment. Probably should have put this up as a headline up because jobs that will be created from Iron Boomerang. We've got the railway line, we've got the steel mills, we've got the shipping fleet and their, their crews. Uh, then we have spin-off industry. So take us through some of the numbers. Steve, what, what do you expect uh, will be needed for the shipping fleet uh, and Shane, the rest of the, the components? Start with the ships, maybe. Okay. Well, we're reckoning our we're reckoning that our ships will be manned uh, with about fifteen people, uh, fifty-five ships. That's eight hundred and twenty-five, and you double that because you've got two crews per ship. So you're looking at about uh, sixteen fifty, and then for every uh, berth on a ship, uh, the multiplier is uh, one point two. Uh, jobs ashore. So you're looking at about, um, you know, uh, over 3,000 jobs created on the shipping side. That's precise. Uh, Shay? Yeah, well, the build and construct, um, 
the um, pre-feasibility is uh, when it reaches its peak, sorry, the pre-feasibility is done, the, the design and approval stage, which is what we're doing now and starting, um, is about three to four thousand. That's surveyors and doing all the preparatory work, uh, the ship uh, design people and, uh, you know, uh, uh, all of that. Uh, the steel mill planning uh, with the biggest, there's only six big steel plant builders in the world, like Boeing and Airbus, 15 countries build them with different parts, you know, so the steel mills are similar to that, you know, and, and the capacity of the world will take up that full capacity when we start building mm -hmm. four, four, four steel mills um, at once and then followed in 18 months later by another four and then the last five delivered um, by 32, five each end. So that will be 75,000 at, at, at peak in construction and build. And then that falls down to operational 35,000 pure steel, okay, and rail operations, permanent jobs, okay. The housing will be permanent, not fly in, fly out. They'll be state-of-the-art. Anyone in the world would want to live in them. We're going to build the most fantastic towns. And uh, the town at uh, uh, Bowen, Abbott Point, uh, State Development Zone area, will be NRI Japan, has already worked that out. Smart cities and industrial towns. Um, mm -hmm. The latest world technology. NRI was the main contractor to, to, to China building new industrial port uh, towns and areas the size of Australia in capacity. And many, many, many hundreds of them, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. unbelievable. I've seen an NRI sign was there, even even with the tensions of Japan and China, you know, they were a mm -hmm. big, big part of the uh, their, their planning. So they're on board. The actual economic benefit town at Bowen will be within five to 10 years, 200,000. They'll have a bigger bigger per capita income than Canberra, the best number one in Australia. I I'm really sorry to tell the bureaucrats that. They'll have to change. So They might be a mass exodus from Canberra <laughs> yeah. to, get, to get jobs and, up north. And guess, guess what they'll be doing on weekends? They'll be catching Red Emperor. And the ones in the Pilbara will be watching the whale sharks, mate. You know, so, so good tourism. Go. It'll be yeah. uh, it'll be like the Gan people. Well, going to Tim Fisher, way. before he died, he kept calling me up to two months, and uh, the great Tim Fisher, wonderful man, and a rail tragic. He's he was uh, on the board of the Gan, and he said, Shane, we'll run a Central India Pacific, east to west, Central India Pacific, and. Before COVID, there were passenger ships watching iron ore load. With due respects to Captain Steve, you know, watching iron ore load is a pretty boring subject. I couldn't imagine 4,000 tourists on board a ship watching iron ore load, but they love it because they live in cities and they don't go to remote areas. <laughs> remote tourism has a huge potential. And yeah. so 800 of them will jump on the central India Pacific and go to Darwin to Adelaide, to Melbourne, it's all standard gauge rail connections. And it'll go to Bowen, to the Barrier Reef, and or to Port Headland and watch the whale sharks. So Ningaloo Reef, the World Heritage Areas, both ends. 
So that, that's just a one a little example of the Aboriginals of, of benefit from those tourist trades like they are from the GAN. So Tim was very excited about that. Well, probably he wanted, he sort of did suggest that I name something after him. I said, well, he, you know, well, I said, well, that's, that's probably a given. Mm. But um, so uh, um, the I think that's a nice story, but it just shows how positive of building and, Iron And Shane, it should serve as a, a, a message for um, the LNP to get on board and, and put away all the political politicking and um, get behind this in a big way. Uh, totally. Work with Stirl, work with Roberts, um, and let's make it happen. Now, I just want to jump across, because it is uh, on the same point, spin-off industry. Um, uh, we have the steel mills, there's process heat, there's excess electricity. Um, when it comes to different ore grades, when you start getting down to lower ore grades, you can get uh, more uh, benefit in things like cement production with the slag, um, casting, we've got the, the, the question of sulphate of potash, mine deposits. Just uh, briefly, what are some of the industries that we could uh, have around these steel mill complexes, uh, spin-off industries? Um, yes, well, well, the third-party services like, um, like oxygen, uh, coke ovens, coke oven gas power stations, uh, stockyards and all the contractors that the fitters and turners and engineers and all that that service the 22 million ton steel complex which is the heart and soul it's the you know of of everything but the industrial steel complex is worth much more than the steel mm. central heart and that they need exactly the same services so if you have an oxygen plant your capex and opex at that scale, it's the world's biggest oxygen plant, is 50% 50 less, capex and opex. Mm -hmm. And even its operations are serviced by contractors that never leave that complex. Mm -hmm. They don't fly in at a high cost to a remote location. They be, this is all permanent. And, and so the costs for the titanium smelting or aluminium smelting using the 900 megawatts of baseload power, export power, the cheapest in the world with no grid cost, 50 to 60% of everyone's cost, and that certainly is even stronger uh, with the, the uh, uh, grid costs are even bigger costs when you look at solar and wind because it's, there's much more of them, grids. So that's, a, that's gonna get up. I'm not against anything, I'm just, I'm talking practically and objectively on viable costs. So our baseload power, which is made from the coke oven gas, is the cheapest in the world. So that attracts permanent aluminium smelting. If we needed batteries to keep the 22 million ton steel complex, we'd need every battery in the world, including in your phone right now, multiplied by 10 to run that plant for two hours. Mm. You know, I mean, we can't exist on non-baseload, we have to have it. It'd have to be nuclear, but we have our own gas. We need the carbon to exchange to the steel. It's called carbon steel. So the value of the aluminium, titanium fertilizer, there's a world shortage of fertilizer. There's a world food shortage. There's a crisis according to the UN right now. Well, we'll be producing copious amounts of ammonia, fertilizer, urea, explosives, 
It's a billion dollar industry. Each one of them is a multi-billion refractory bricks. Refractory bricks will fly to Mars. It's a high tech. It's in everybody's heat exchanger. For, for those who don't know, the, the refractory brick technology is what is used in the space shuttle uh, thermal uh, protection for the shuttles. So that's, that's that reference to Mars. So we're, yeah. we're talking about industries that are bigger than the total wine industry, mm. domestic and export, yeah. in value of GDP to Australia. Each one of these. So that Iron Boomerang, the steel complex, hosts these things like it hosts the railway line and the ships. Mm. And guess, guess who benefits from the ships? In our empty containers, well, we produce titanium, which is very light. It'll go in a 40-foot container, Captain Steve, or our special steel cages, you know, aluminium ingots, and mm. the ships will take it because they're going back empty with... So we'll start filling those containers. We have 20,000 tonne. It's actually up to 6,000 containers per ship, but the usage will be around four to 5,000, okay? Not too... To accommodate for the steel weight. No, no, no. Well, the capacity of the ships is five to 6,000. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's containers. Uh, 40-footers, that is, TEUs, yeah. Conscious of time, uh, gentlemen, the I have two... Uh, questions remaining but I the segue into the environmental benefit is the next one I want to ask first of all where do we source the water from uh, is there a element of desalination involved is there a question of um, a, a enough supply of water in Queensland and WA to make this amount of steel so where's the water source going to be um, and uh, and then uh, if you guys want to comment on the environmental aspect of this um i have a yeah let's take that one first the water yes well um firstly we have the burdekin dam um which the original builders of it the engineers and the coordinator general's office of queensland who are engineers most of them and uh um, um ross hunter um, who was the advisor for supply chain infrastructure to the premier bd at the time uh, principal advisor, um, um, Queensland Transport, um, he was seconded to them. Um, we can extend the, the Burdekin Dam is the second best world-class dam. There's only two, at Lake Argyle and the Burdekin Dam. It can be extended by two to six metres. And by taking it to six metres, it's three times its current capacity at a very reasonable cost. The two metres was around at the time Sunwater told us We've, they've already tendered a cost per litre, no trouble. The two metres will give us more than two or three phases of iron boomerangs water needs, okay? And they're going to build a channel or a pipeline to, to the Bowen area and also assist irrigation for the tomato growers. It's the biggest tomato growing area in Australia. And the current member for Dawson it was a major tomato grower from that region, ex-mayor of the Whitsunday Shire. One of the most powerful economic shires in the country mm -hmm. with Sunday tourism, sugarcane, cattle, farming, um, tomatoes, I just meant tourism, huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a huge, wealthy shire and very productive shire that we're so lucky to be in. And uh, the state development zone, industrial state development zone is already gazetted by the Betty government at that time. So I'm mm -hmm. giving them a leg up, but they did this. They sh showed a bit of vision. And a, and a bit of guts, 
at the time. And that's what we need now more than ever in this world circumstance. So the water from Queensland is more than covered. We will be releasing no water at all to the reef. We'll reuse the water for the town. It'll all be incorporated with the industrial water up to five different grades. We'll export water for irrigation, very good water, and we'll have an algae farm uh, of 10,000 hectares to capture the carbon. Nature does it better, more carbon than we produce. Now, we'll also reduce it in other ways, carbon capture and utilisation. We'll make a profit out of our carbon desk division. It's a valuable product. And we already have that covered in not one or two ways, up to four or five ways. Well, Shane, that's right. I, I, there's not enough time today to go into all of the environmental uh, aspects and benefits of Project Iron Boomerang. Um, uh, there's a whole division that can cover that, and I will probably take it up in a big way in another interview like this one. But, um... Amazingly, I'm giving you a new statement. We could be exporting the slab still and it'll be at the bequest of the steel mill owners with a carbon credit. Mm -hmm. So when it goes to Indonesia, they're green by receiving that per tonne carbon credit. Mm -hmm. that, that is already being planned and totally doable mm -hmm. under, our, under our master plan. Yeah, it's amazing. That, That's a world first. That alone, and uh, I mean, I've had conversations over this past month uh, and, uh, about, with mayors from Western Australia, with, uh, with mayors in Queensland, and there is this uh, hope that we can transition into green hydrogen, green yeah. steel. Yet yeah, we'll do all of that. Uh, at this point in time, using the world's current practice, we still tick the green box. We're going to make steel uh, much more uh, with less carbon emission, capturing the CO2 for industrial use and sending that steel to countries that otherwise would be um, not doing it anywhere near as efficient as us. So there's, that's the, we can quantify that and that's the job of government. My final... In WA on the water, because water is probably the biggest game changer. If we haven't got water, we couldn't build anywhere else in Australia pretty well. It's just luck, the lucky country again. WA Water is the biggest government division of the WA government, running 97%. It's the engineering fraternity for all other WA government divisions. We met with them. It's the resource for the WA government, engineering resource. The dewatering of BHP, Rio, Fortescue and Roy Hill produces up to 55 um, megalitres of water a day dewatering the mines to get to the iron ore. It's beautiful portable water. So it actually costs WA, uh, the iron ore miners, money to pump it back underground because if they let it to the Mindy Mindy Creeks, it's not normal desert. It's flowing water in a desert that doesn't have water normally, except in the wet season. So that comes from an aquifer that's quite different from the rest of Australia's aquifer and it's recharged by the big cyclones that go up the Fortescue Valley, which is up to 30 kilometres wide and they have incredible dumps. The river comes up up to 80, 80, 80 foot, 80 foot, 20 metres, 30 metres high. So the water is beautiful and portable water and that actually, I think the WA guys said, and BHP and Rio will probably be annoyed, but 
they said they'll pay you to take it because it's costing them a lot of money to get it back underground, you know. So there's more water than we need from the aquifer in WA, and that's from the WA's biggest division, department division. So isn't that amazing? We couldn't do that anywhere else. That's just luck. We're amazed to hear that, yeah. Well, finally, uh, to wrap up, uh, gentlemen, the question I wanted to put to you is the funding uh, model and what does government need to do? Let's start with that second question. What do you need the federal government to do? What do you need the state governments to do? How do we get this to the next phase, uh, to, to construction phase? Lay that out. Can I uh, defer and follow? Uh, let Captain Steve lead with that because... Uh, He's uh, a very wise man in, in other fields to me, and uh, I think he can just summarise that as well as I can and more politically connected. Unfortunately, in recent years, Canberra seems to be a partisan war zone where one tribe fights another tribe and point scoring seems to trump what's good for the nation. That's just an unfortunate observation and i think it's it's pretty general that observation uh, around the country what government needs to do is do what governments of your used to do and that is put the nation first we want parties to work together this is a nation building project this project will be spoken about for generations to come and will will provide employment for generations to come we need to put petty politics to one side, as, as nice and satisfying as that might be for some politicians, and work together to bring this to fruition. We need the support of every party in, in Canberra to bring this to, to fruition, to make it happen. Absolutely. We need government to put all of its uh, pettiness aside and think like John Bradfield uh, and those uh, great... Uh, uh, Australians who built this nation, the nation builders. Uh, so uh, I think there's so much more we could cover, uh, but for the benefit of our audience, I will say stay tuned to this channel because I will do more interviews on other aspects of Iron Boomerang, especially on the environmental front, especially on the question of international relations and defence. There's, uh, there's so much more we could open up. But for today, I uh, really want to thank both of you, uh, Captain Steve, Shane, uh, for joining me, uh, for answering my questions. If uh, you, the audience, have uh, your uh, questions about any aspect of the project, put them in the comments to this video. Ask your questions. Uh, if you have objections, if you think something's off, uh, we'll put them in there too. And we, uh, we're happy to chew up every answer. Uh, <laughs> chew up every question. We uh, enjoyed the discussion. Uh, we have to be on our, uh, ready for everything because we're taking this to Parliament. And, you know, failure is not an option, as the Apollo uh, command said. We have to do this. There's, uh, our, our grandkids, as Glenn Stirl said in his speech, our grandkids are going to curse us for our failure. Uh, so uh, once again, gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for joining Citizens Insight, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for all your work and research, um, and uh, thanks to Captain Steve for, uh, for joining me. It's an honour. Thank you. Thank you.